Uh, well, friends, uh, did you know that we all have blind spots? Uh, this week during our church staff meeting, one of our ministers introduced us to an eye test which shows us that everyone suffers from blind spots. Uh, in your bulletin, you uh, should have received a copy uh, of this eye test. Uh, it's a piece of paper with a cross and an elephant on it. And uh, you can take it out and give it a go if you like. Um, how does it work? Well, uh, what you do is you cover up one eye. Uh, you can, I think it works better if you close one eye. And then uh, you just focus... You bring the paper close to you and you focus with your open eye on uh, the cross. And uh, if you kind of move the piece of paper away from your eye, there should be a point at which the elephant disappears. Does that work? Um, I'd love to take a photo of this, actually. <laughs> I don't think we've ever done this at church before. Um, but does it work for, who does it work for, yep? Um, for me, I had to kind of uh, hold it really far away from me for it to work. Maybe that just says something about my eyes. But uh, it, it should work, uh, and that's called your blind spot. Uh, but, now that, that's enough fun for one day. Uh, you, can, you can put your paper away. But uh, the point is that uh, we all have blind spots. Uh, most of the time, it doesn't bother us too much, does it? Because uh, the genius of the way God has created us means that um, the other eye actually compensates so that we don't walk around with these blind spots. But at other times, having blind spots can be a very deadly thing, can't it? Uh, I'm sure some of us have had near-death experiences because we haven't checked the blind spot in our car as we've changed lanes. However, I want to suggest that today's passage is about spiritual blind spots uh, or spiritual blindness, which can be a very deadly thing. Uh, you can see it in what Jesus says about the Pharisees and the scribes, who are the religious and cultural leaders, uh, the religious and cultural elite of the day. Uh, have a look with me at chapter 15, verse 14. Chapter 15, verse 14. Jesus says to his disciples, let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Not only does Jesus call the Pharisees and the scribes spiritually blind here, but he speaks of their ultimate destruction and the deadly danger of following in their footsteps. And so this morning, Jesus takes us on a spiritual eye test if you like. Now, do you and I suffer from spiritual blindness? Are we in great danger because of our spiritual blindness? How is your spiritual eyesight going for you at the moment? Well, what then does spiritual blindness look like? Well, uh, in the first half of our passage, Matthew shows us the spiritual blindness of these Pharisees and, and these scribes. Uh, if you remember, um, Jesus has been doing many miracles uh, up to this point, like feeding the 5,000 and healing the sick, as a pointer to his identity as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And in chapter 15, verse 1, uh, some Pharisees and scribes come 
come from their headquarters in Jerusalem to investigate what Jesus is doing. It seems that they are a little bit suspicious of his activities. However, I want you to see very clearly uh, what exactly these Pharisees and scribes are really like. Uh, firstly, they are, moral, uh, they are outwardly moralistic. Outwardly moralistic. In other words, they are simply concerned about enforcing certain rules. Uh, you can see it there in the question they asked Jesus uh, about his disciples in verse 2. Uh, do you see it there? They, they, they say to Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. It's astonishing, don't you think, that they would ask Jesus this question at this particular point in the Gospel. Now, Jesus has just fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. He's been going around doing miraculous acts of healing. But rather than asking Jesus more important questions about who he really is, and marvelling at his compassion and kindness, well, all the Pharisees and scribes are concerned about is nitpicking about whether his disciples wash their hands before a meal. Now, friends, it's important to realise that their concern here is not simply about good hygiene, but their concern is about being morally clean before God, which they think can be achieved through the outward through the outward ritual of, of washing their hands. Uh, it's still a, a concern in our day as well, isn't it? About three kilometres from here, in the uh, Hindu temple at Strathfield South, there are people engaging in ritual washing to be clean before their gods. About six kilometres from here in Lakemba is a huge Muslim mosque where people engage in ritual washing to be clean before their God. In our city, many people eat certain foods and drink certain drinks, thinking that that will make them clean before the God of themselves. However, the important thing here is that the ritual washing of hands was never something that God had commanded in the Old Testament. Uh, yes, there are parts of the Old Testament that speak of ritual hand washing. And so you can see, uh, for example, in Exodus chapter 30 and Leviticus chapter 22, if you're writing notes, um, that there was a requirement for hand washing. But these were required only of the priests and not the common Israelite. And so you can see there in verse 2 that what the Pharisees and scribes are insisting on from Jesus' disciples are called the tradition of the elders. In other words, the idea of ritual handwashing is simply a man-made religious tradition rather than something that comes from God himself. However, while these Pharisees are outwardly moralistic, insisting on their rules, why do you not wash your hands? You can see there that Jesus goes on to expose what they are really like on the inside, can't you? What are they really like? Well, inwardly, they are godless. Ceaselessly trying to find loopholes to get away with not 
genuinely obeying God's word and the things that he says. I love it that Jesus doesn't answer the question of the Pharisees and the scribes here. He doesn't want to play their game. He sees right through them and he counters with a more probing question of his own, which you can see there in verse 3. He says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honour his father. And so for the sake of tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, what do you think is going on here in what Jesus says? Well, Jesus is giving an example of just one way in which the Pharisees and scribes appear outwardly uh, outwardly moral, but while inwardly refusing to listen to God's word. Uh, You see, in the Old Testament, uh, as you probably know, God sets out a requirement to honour your father and your mother. Uh, It's the fifth commandment and out of the Ten Commandments. And the seriousness of this commandment can be seen in that not honouring God-given authority was punishable by death. But if you are a Pharisee, how do you find a way out of obeying this commandment, I wonder? Well, I'll tell you what the Pharisees and scribes did. Uh, They came up with a man-made tradition which effectively made them look moral on the outside while allowing them to disobey God's word inwardly. Uh, the tradition was a tradition called Korban, which uh, uh, you, you, you see in, in uh, some of the other Gospels. And uh, this tradition was a way of dedicating your property or your money to the Jewish temple so that when you die, your money or your property would pass Uh, into the ownership of uh, the the, the people who looked after the temple. And so this is how it could work. Uh, Suppose you had an elderly father or or mother who required your financial help. What you could do is you could enter into this agreement of Korban uh, to dedicate your money to the temple and then tell your father and your mother that you can't really help them right now because your money is now dedicated to God. But in the meantime, you could nevertheless spend your own money and do what you like with your money because none of it would actually pass to the temple until after your death, you see. It was a, a way of appearing religiously pious on the outside while inwardly disobeying God's word. Uh, Now, friends, I just need to point out that Jesus is not speaking here against every man-made tradition. Uh, Regular worship of God means that having traditions are inevitable. Uh, The fact that we meet here at 9 a.m. every Sunday is a tradition for most of us. The fact that we sing four songs in the service, usually, is is a tradition. The fact that we have church bulletins is a tradition. And so there's nothing wrong with traditions per se. But how easy it is to use those traditions in order to not 
genuinely obey God. For example, often people joke that it is an Anglican tradition to sit in the same pew in the same place every week. Nothing wrong with that. And yet, how easy it is to use such traditions to disobey God's command to love others. Perhaps to love others at church means giving up our long-cherished traditions and sitting with the new person or sitting with a person you don't know because you deeply want to obey God's command to love others from the heart. And so you don't not only sit with others, but you also stick around after the service and you, you encourage other people. Perhaps over morning tea we can chat with one another about the kind of traditions that we may have in our own church that may be in danger of overriding God's word in our lives and in our practice. And so because uh, these Pharisees and scribes are outwardly moralistic but inwardly godless, you can see there that Jesus uses uh, really strong language in calling them hypocrites in verse 7. Further, they are just like the leaders of Israel during the time of the prophet Isaiah who were judged by God because of their hypocrisy. That's why Jesus quotes there from Isaiah chapter 29, saying that this people honour me with their lips, but their hearts, what's on the inside, is actually far away from me. Just like the Israel of old, they are outwardly moralistic and religious and pious, but inwardly godless. The word hypocrite is actually a word that comes from Greek theatre, meaning to play act. Uh, you know, in, in Greek theatre, um, have you seen those masks that the actors would, would put on, um, on their faces? And they would play a particular role or uh, a particular character that is completely different to the real person behind the mask. That's what hypocrisy is, isn't it? It's making you believe that I am a moral and religious and pious person, even though the real me, deep inside, is finding ways to ignore and disregard God's word. Now, friends, Hypocrisy was rife in the religious and cultural elite of Jesus' day, as we've seen in the example of the Pharisees and the scribes. But such hypocrisy is alive and well in the religious and cultural elite of our own day as well, isn't it? Think about the liberal minister who dresses in their long, flowing religious gowns, preaching about the love of God for everyone to the cheers and the approval of the secular media, while never obeying God's uh, will in calling the, wor the world to repentance. Jesus would say, outwardly moral, inwardly godless, hypocrite. Or think about the CEO who preaches with religious zeal about inclusivity and tolerance and respect and yet, yet, if anyone dares to disagree with her sexual ethic, well, they are, they are excluded. They are not tolerated. They are not respected. And they are shown the door. 
And Jesus would say, outwardly moral, inwardly godless, hypocrite. Or think about the partner at the big law firm who preaches with religious zeal to his colleagues about the values of teamwork and reliability and loyalty in the workplace, and yet his marriage is falling apart for the third time because he knows that none of these qualities because he shows that none of these qualities exist in his relationship with his family. And Jesus would say, outwardly moral, inwardly godless, you're a hypocrite. But it's not just the religious and cultural elite, is it? Uh, Christians often speak about the car park miracle. Have you heard of the car park miracle? Who's heard of the car park miracle? Uh, Some of us. You know, you've treated your spouse and children really badly during the week. You've made many decisions during the week motivated by greed or envy. You've gossiped about other people in the workplace. But you come to church and you park the car and you walk from the car to the church and in that short space of time, a great miracle happens and you become a completely different person. Uh, You are kind, you are generous, call everyone brother and sister and praise God and you bless others. Now, please don't think I'm just speaking about you. I remember earlier this year, I had a big fight with my wife in the morning, entirely my fault. I couldn't believe the sorts of things that were coming out of my mouth. And I came to church and I preached a sermon about how the gospel ought to shape our love for one another. And I remember thinking, even as I was preaching, Huey, you're a hypocrite. Now, friends, um, we've seen what spiritual blindness looks like in the example of the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, They are outwardly moral, but inwardly godless. They are merely interested in polishing the outside of the cup. They just want to touch up the exterior paint and ignoring that the engine is desperately sick. But what is it exactly that the spiritually blind cannot see? Why is it that they are blind? What is the real problem here? Well, in the final part of our passage... Jesus turns his attention away from the Pharisees and and the scribes and he begins to teach the crowds and his disciples. And the thing that Jesus points out about the spiritually blind is that they simply cannot see the horrendous nature of the problem that we all have before God. What is the nature of that problem? Well, firstly, you'll notice there that it's an internal problem, as we heard in our kids' talk. Uh, You can see this in the little parable that Jesus tells the crowd in chapter 15, verse 10. Uh, So come with me to chapter 15, verse 10. And uh, it says there, And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Uh, The key word here is the word defilement. It means to be contaminated or polluted or to be unclean. 
Uh, imagine putting a, a drop of excrement into a container or a cup of water. It soon spreads and contaminates the whole thing, and you wouldn't even think about drinking it, would you? But the idea of defilement is really about our relationship with God. If we are defiled before God, then it means that because of his holiness, he doesn't want to touch us. It means that we are set against God and deserving of nothing but his wrath and his punishment on the final day of judgment. But here's the thing. Jesus says that the, so the source of this defilement is not something external to us, but something deeply internal to us. You know, it's not something that comes from the outside, but you know, if we, if we kind of bring it in from the outside and, and we put it in our mouths, then it suddenly makes us unclean. But it is the things that are internal, the things that come from the inside and come out of our mouths that make us defiled before God. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes thought that defilement was merely an external matter and therefore solved simply by human solutions and man-made traditions. If I just wash my hands and eat food that is clean, then I will not be defiled before God, is what they thought. The problem is not something that is internal to me, it's something that is external. And so I can easily solve the problem by undertaking a few religious rituals, you see. But it's not just the Pharisees, is it? This is the way people have always thought about the human condition. You know, if you ask most people out on the street about what they think people are really like, then they'll, they'll say, you know, you know, people may not always be the best they can be. I mean, I, I'm not the best I can be. I mean, we're not perfect people is what's often said. But we're not far off. We're generally good on the inside. And, you know, although there are some bad apples here and there, you know, people in prison and that sort of thing, well, we are generally good on the inside. But, and the problem is external to me. And so I can simply fix those problems myself. You know, all I need to do is do a self-improvement course or do some meditation or do some charity work, or if I'm really religious, do some religious things like going to church every now and then and undertaking some sort of ritual, and that will make me a better person before God. And Jesus says, how blind can you get? Defilement before God is not simply an external problem, but a problem that is deeply internal to you and me. For the real problem, says Jesus, is that we have a rotten heart before God. And you can see this in what Jesus says in explaining the parable. Uh, if you've been following the Matthew series, you will know that there's been a pattern of Jesus teaching the crowds in parables, but then explaining those parables in detail to his disciples. And so here you see the Apostle Peter asking Jesus for further explanation and clarification. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. Verse 17, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, 
and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Uh, The heart in the Bible is not just where we feel things. You know, that's how our world thinks of the heart, isn't it? But it is the source of our real character. It's where we do our reasoning. It's where we imagine. It's where we have our purpose in life. It's where we exercise our will to do certain things and not do other things. In other words, the heart is the real me. It's the real you. And what does Jesus say you and I are really like? Well, you can see there that Jesus says that in your heart there is murder, the taking of life. There is sexual, uh, there is adultery, being unfaithful to your husband or your wife. There is sexual immorality, the sexual arousal of uh, one another outside of marriage. There is theft, the stealing of property, both physical and intellectual, like plagiarism. There is false witness, the telling of lies, perhaps as you fudge your tax return. There is slander and gossip. But the astonishing thing about what Jesus says in verse 17 is that, did you notice that he prefaces these things, this list, with evil thoughts? That's the first one on the list, isn't it? You see, it is even the things that you and I think about that defiles us before God, because that is what we are really like. I mean, most of us are fairly good at regulating ourselves when it comes to you know, the big sinful actions most of the time, like murder. And yet Jesus isn't saying that it's just murder that defiles us. It's the thought of hatred, which is where murder begins. It's not just adultery, physical adultery. It's lustful thoughts. It's not simply theft, but thinking about how to fudge the tax return or even not putting in a tax return because you receive cash in your business. What things do you think about? What have you thought about this week? What things have you thought about others as you've come into church this morning. Imagine if you worked for the Australian Classification Board and you had to classify a film about your thoughts. What kind of classification would you give it? Would you be happy showing it in public? Would you be happy for God to see it? You see, what Jesus is saying here is that at the heart of the problem of humanity, at the heart of the problem of you and me, is the problem of the human heart. For what goes on in your heart is the real you. 
what goes on in my heart is the real me. We may be able to hide the reality from others, but we simply cannot hide it from God. And what Jesus is saying here is that you and I are rotten to the core and, if we, and we ignore God's ways and we are deserving of nothing but God's judgment. Do you understand this? So how should we respond to the hard things that Jesus says here? Well, I want to suggest that it's all about following the right guide. It's all about following the right guide. On the one hand, we can follow the example of the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, In verse 12, the disciples report back to Jesus that the Pharisees were offended by the things that Jesus was saying. You know, to be told that you are your biggest problem because your heart is rotten to the core is a deeply offensive thing, don't you think? It challenges our pride and makes a mockery of the flimsy human solutions and man-made religious traditions that we think will make us clean before God. And so the Pharisees and the scribes simply get offended and they blind themselves to the truth that Jesus brings. And what does Jesus say? Well, in verse 13 he says that they will be rooted up. It's a frightening reference to the parable of the weeds and the wheat, which uh, we saw a few weeks ago, where on the last day the weeds, the plants that were not planted there by God, are simply rooted up and burned in the fire. What Jesus is saying is that these Pharisees and scribes who continue to be blind to the truth will on the last day find themselves under God's judgment in hell. But further, in verse 14, did you notice that he calls them blind guides? In other words, it's not only them, but those who follow them and their understanding of the human condition who will fall into the pit of God's judgment. Uh, When I was in Hawaii earlier this year on holiday with my family, uh, we didn't know our our way around the island, and so we uh, uh, called for a a guide uh, to come and pick us up in a bus so that he could drive us around and show us some of the sights. Uh, Imagine if our guide came and he was wearing dark glasses and uh, he had a, a cane, you know, that blind people use to feel their way around. Would you go with someone like that? Well, of course not. He'll probably drive you off the edge of a cliff. You see, there are no shortage of self-help gurus and people who promise to make you a better person if you do this course or if you're part of this organization or you undertake this sort of ritual. There's no shortage of friends who will give you all sorts of external solutions But Jesus says that if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. However, the alternative is to see the truth of what Jesus is saying here and to follow him. For if you see that your biggest problem is the problem of your rotten heart before God and my rotten heart before God, then you will see that your greatest need And my greatest need is for our hearts to be deeply cleansed and to be changed and to be made new. You will see the need for radical heart surgery 
if I can put it like that. And you will see that this is not something you can simply do for yourself, but something that you need done for you by God, because you are rotten to the core. You simply cannot do it on your own. Next week we are going to see a Gentile woman who recognises her uncleanness before Jesus. And marvellously, she comes to Jesus, desperately trusting that he is the only one who can meet her great need. And it is this, this woman that Jesus commends and whom Jesus provides an answer for in her greatest need. And so what we need to do is we need to go to Jesus. We need to recognize our uncleanness before him. It is to say to Jesus, Jesus, I know that I have a heart that is rotten to the core, and I simply can't do anything about it. But I need you to cleanse me and change me and make me a new person. And Jesus promises those who see very clearly in this way, he promises cleansing by his blood, which was shed on the cross for people with rotten hearts, so that we might be forgiven and accepted by God himself and made new. And so will you go to Jesus this morning and acknowledge to him what you are really like? and be cleansed by his blood. And just in closing, I think that if I see rightly the depth of my rotten heart and just how much Jesus has met my greatest need in cleansing my heart of sin, then perhaps I will not complain so much about the sinfulness of other people. Is that right? You know, we, we often complain about the sinfulness of others, don't we? We often think that the problem is out there. If only all those people got their, their act together, it'll be a wonderful place. But if I truly understand uh, what Jesus is saying here, I will stand amazed, not that Jesus can save someone like Kanye West, but that Jesus has saved someone like me. Perhaps I will seek to change myself by God's grace before I try to change others. Are you someone who is seeing clearly this morning? and listening to the truth of what Jesus says. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you that your word uh, is a light that shines the truth and exposes what we are really like before you. Uh, Father, help us to see the depth of our rotten hearts and the things that we do and say and think about that are not pleasing to you. Uh, help us to acknowledge what we are really like before you. Help us to see that this great problem of our hearts is not something that we can fix by ourselves, 
but something that we need fixed for us by your Son. And we thank you for him. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that by his death, he has cleansed us from sin and that he is the one who gives us new hearts that seek to obey you from the inside. And so help us to continue to go to Jesus and to receive from him the amazing grace that he offers of forgiveness and a new heart. And help us to repent of hypocrisy so that we are not simply people who are concerned to appear moral on the outside while inwardly ignoring you. Help us to be people who desire truly from the heart to learn from Jesus and to put into practice the things that we hear in your word. For we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.